The plan is not to alienate audiences or to preach to the choir. Our skill as filmmakers is to open up the conversation. You know, films have to sneak in ideas. They should be Trojan horses. Hey, Sky. Hey, Jenny. So Oscar season is upon us. And I think of all the wonderful documentaries that were nominated, I think one that's really stood out in terms of the conversation amongst documentary people is All That Breathes. And we're really excited to have the director, Shanak Sen, on the podcast. Yeah, I think that this film was so different and just gentle is the word that comes to mind the most for me in that you know, it's such a hyper specific story and yet brings you into the lives of these three people as they care for birds in Delhi. But it also speaks so much to how we should treat fellow beings in the world. And I think it's just so uh, appropriate for this moment. And I I loved it so much and found it so inspiring. I'm, I'm so excited to hear this interview. Yeah, yeah. So for context, for people who haven't watched All That Breathes, the film follows brothers in Delhi, India, who are running like a hospital for birds. And it's sort of like a meditation on the human animal relationship. Mm-hmm. And as you said, the film's very gentle and it shows a lot of restraint. It's It has a very unique visual style, which really made me want to have uh, Shanak, the director, on the podcast. It reminds me a lot of like a narrative style of uh, visual filmmaking. Yeah. And we get into that in this conversation. Shanak talks about visually how he approached the film. He also shot it for, I think, six months or a year and ended up just scrapping all the footage because he completely pivoted that style. And and we talk about that choice and how difficult that was. We talk about the editing process because Mm. he ended up shooting a lot of really great material and the process of letting some of that go and knowing when to stop filming. So it's a really fascinating, wide-ranging conversation. And I will say that we, we get really quickly into the process part of this conversation because Shinnok didn't have a lot of time. So we don't really talk much about his personal background. But for people who are really curious about the process, this will be a really interesting conversation for them. Mm -hmm. And before or after you listen to this, you can watch the film on HBO Go right? Or is it? No, it's not HBO Go anymore. (laughs) Scratch that. I'm sorry. Oh my God. You can watch the film on uh, HBO Max. Definitely watch the film and be prepared for some really incredible long shots. Yeah. Don't, don't watch it on your computer. Watch it, watch it on, on the big screen if you can. If you own a television. Yeah. So this is our conversation with Shanak Sen about his film, All That Breathes. And you're listening to Rough Cut. So thank you so much for being on the show. The film is incredible. And everyone I've talked to about it, mostly people in the documentary space, I think one of the first questions everyone has had consistently is, how were you able to do that? Uh, well, firstly, I think it's a function of time. If you spent three long years doing it, and this wasn't three years with really long gaps, right? We were shooting in some stretches persistently, very rigorously. Uh, secondly, the thing is that we, it was really the grammar of the form that we um, decided, which is that for the first six months, we were shooting as if it was a regular verite observational doc, by which I mean that we were shooting handheld. Uh, but soon I realized that the material that I was getting was just too edgy and restless and anxious 
and that just wouldn't cut it so um what we decided then was to just junk the entirety of those 6 months and two big hard drives sadly got trashed and um we then moved into this new style where i realized that we had to take from the toolkit of fiction which is that you know like cranes and tracks and dollies and sliders and almost the entirety of the film then had to change tack because the world i was encountering that i was shooting was meant to be contemplative and meditative and you know there's a kind of thoughtful quality to the lives of the brothers and the film had to reflect it in form and tone so the form could not be like a grungy handheld variety style it had to be fluid and it had to be beautiful and therefore we had to find this aesthetic and that's when we developed this aesthetic of you know these slow languorous pans and these languid till downs and so on and i realized that the it it was like the outer covering or the outer shell of the film was like scripted like fiction but of course the characters are not told what to do thankfully the space that we were shooting in was very small and the action that happens there is repetitive and the same every day so which allowed us to basically choreograph blocking and camera movements so for 3 years we just kept two tripods and a slider between them in that basement and every day we would just keep moving and when you embrace this kind of a style what changes is the the shape of the material changes because then you have this different kind of a style and everything is shot like that so for two and a half years every shot was either a track in or a pan or a slider shot so the mountain of footage that you get in this kind of style is uh, really high and once you've leaned into this kind of a style and let go of the run and gun kind of a style it uh, totally changes so essentially the grammar of the film itself evolved into this and apart from that uh, you know there's also just plain liquid luck especially things like uh, salik's glasses being taken i could have shot for 100 years and to get that shot with decent exposure focus framing be impossible that was just pure luck you know those kinds of things are not easy at all to be able to find so i think it's a combination of all of these things and of course uh, our cinematographers ben bernhard um, who basically perfected the style i mean started working on something similar with viktor kosakovsky in all his films like uh, aquarella and vivan las antipodas etc and that's a kind of form that was close to something that i wanted to start developing so we, those are the predicates on which we began anyway Yeah, I mean I really respect that kind of commitment to that visual style and maybe this is an incorrect assumption but like I imagine it was probably tempting to take the camera off sticks or off the slider because you want to catch a moment that's, you know, really beautiful and you don't want to let it pass by, but you don't want to break that visual style. Was that hard at all at first to just to stick to that? Uh, of course it was it was uh, impossibly hard but the thing is that it's like a film school exercise right when you place a limitation or a restriction it really causes you to find creative workarounds and what what it does is that it gives you a kind of discipline and you have to create the world with those blinkers but then those limitations become your main assets because they give you a kind of fluency in grammar and in vocabulary yeah and the film itself also just shows a lot of restraint i guess like similar to the style like you're sort of just dropped into these subjects lives and you don't really know a lot about them and there's not like a, a ton of context given were you ever tempted to 
give more context or information or, or worried that the audience would be lost or confused? The legacy of films that formed the references for rhythm and style and cadence were all films that dipped into a different kind of a cinematic poetic tradition where image is not information. You know, you're looking for the cinema in the image. To name people more specifically, it's like for the edit, we were very influenced by somebody like Gianfranco Rossi. For the camera, like cinematographically, we were very interested in Viktor Kosakovsky. I was myself very, like the people I would go to to get a sense of tone and tempo would be people like Tarkovsky, Bella, Tar- you know, the East European style. Because they, they were so good with track-ins and stuff, like with camera movements. So in all of these traditions, there's almost a constant eschewing of information. I've, nev- I've never really been a fan, unless it's very necessary, of text. Text delineating who the people are. So imagine if the film began with Delhi 2020, the city. You know, it's like, it just wouldn't be the same film. Because essentially what you're looking for is complete immersion. And the we're showing a reality where the camera is observing something. And you as a viewer is being rewarded by looking at what the camera is looking at. There's a visual pleasure of watching. The minute you feel like something is intermediated by another level, like layer, like text or something, it doesn't, it doesn't help at all. So I, I wanted to completely avoid any kind of text or information plate or uh, uh, so on. And I think all you need to know about the brothers becomes very clear in the film. Like you, you are able to um, access psychological recesses in their mind, which I think, uh, you know, it's more, it's more interiorized and the film is very interested in the inner life of mind. So I never felt the need for uh, more context because you get all the psychological context that you need. Hmm. So I, 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 me or uh, Charlotte or Vedan, the editors, never felt that need ever. The distinct visual style that you talked about earlier and that you developed after six months of filming, was that something that you knew you were going to make that pivot and you communicated that with your DP? Or was it a visual style that you developed together as a team? So this is all, uh, this is in the world of the pre-DP, before the first money that we had ever raised in the first year was from grants. You know, when you begin the film, you're mainly a professional grant writer than a filmmaker, right? And you just spend endless hours writing log lines and synopses. And um, during that time, it was me who was shooting or an assistant. So the, it was just two or three of us who were just hunched in that tiny basement. And uh, the decision to abandon uh, handheld happened then. But then, of course, the style of the languid pants and this kind of a flowy, dreamy, aesthetic style was uh, initially established by Ben, Ben Bernhard, who came in and brought in some of this lovely style of like these uh, really uh, smooth pants and stuff. And then it was evolved further by Rijudas or other DP. So once the language was set, that became our universe. Another sort of restraint question. There's political issues in the film that are touched on, but they're sort of in the background and the film never really fully dives into it. Kind of just feels like a like a B plot again that's happening in the background. And I'm wondering about that decision making because it's very unique. So when we began the film, the film was meant to be purely ecological and philosophical. Those are the concerns. But, uh, you know, the city of Delhi was going through a very turbulent, tumultuous time. And the main decision was whether we point the camera streetwards or 
respect the integrity of the lives that we were shooting because the brothers are not conventionally political people i mean they're very concerned about the politics of humans and birds but not that kind of electoral politics or sectarian politics so what we essentially decided was that we'd respect the way in which we encountered that world where the outside world sort of leaks in and over time we decided that we would work on what can be called the aesthetics of the leak which is that for instance a character goes to the balcony saleh goes to the balcony and you hear the audio of the murmurs of a distant crowd that's probably protesting or a character is watching the video of violence on his cell phone you know the bit where the chipmunk comes out of saleh's pocket and you only hear the audio of what's obviously some kind of heinous violence and what it does is that you understand that this is a kind of wallpaper of their lives and for the longest time i had to arm wrestle with whether this is what i wanted or not and whether to make the politics more front and center but having said that i think now in hindsight i prefer it being oblique and tangential because um when it is this what happens is that you sense the political more than being told what it is and you know films have to sneak in ideas they should be trojan horses you shouldn't reveal your cards in the sense that the plan is not to alienate audiences or to preach to the choir our skill as filmmakers is to open up the conversation emotionally move people you know i i prefer it like this because i think it treats the audience more intelligently yeah definitely does was that something that came out of the editing process like is it something that you decided later to kind of keep those things in the background or was that a conscious decision as you were shooting the film well part of it was in the edit but a lot of it was also shoot based because a lot of the decisions are when you take long takes with the minute you've shot a rat shot for 4 minutes you know that that's the beginning of the film right you're not going to be able to put in four long minutes in the middle So a lot of the some of the decisions in terms of the length of the shots were in camera but the stuff about how much the social uh, and the, the unrest stuff comes in um I think was more a decision at the edit than the shoot Were you still shooting at all while you were editing Yes because we had a mountain of footage we had about 300 hours and remember this is not 300 hours of run and gun grungy raw material it's 300 hours of good footage so it was a whole mountain that we had to climb so there was no way we could leave it till the end so our uh, editor in india uh, vedant joshi he uh, started editing for about 5 to 6 months while the shoot was ongoing so that we could have a you know a simultaneous process we'd come back shoot see that this was not working go back again the next day to shoot more rats for instance you know like spend time on individual shots sieve through shots on the very day see how it was sitting in the edit table So we trimmed it down to about like a 3 hours sprawling unwatchable behemoth of a cut by the time we left for Copenhagen and then in Copenhagen we it was more about structure and we spent about 5 6 months there and with Charlotte there it was more about um, cadence and rhythm and flow and you know more zoomed out perspective of things instead of just getting the plot in place and that's what you need to do you need to really have a draft to keep reworking and in the last months you're just looking at flow and at a more cumulative experience than the granular detail of it so i would say yes i i would say it, those kinds of decisions were mainly uh, on the edit and part of which happened during the shoot and a lot of which happened during the edit 
I want to talk about Charlotte, your editor. She was an editor on two of my favorite documentaries, The Act of Killing and Truffle Hunters. And the style of this film really reminded me of Truffle Hunters, just, you know, the, the long shots that are very set up. And, you know, Truffle Hunters, I think, was mostly on sticks. Can you talk about what she contributed to the film? Well, for one, I obviously felt similarly about Truffle Hunters because that's a film that's marvelously edited. I like its editing more than anything else in it, like more than the uh, short taking, which is also very good, of course. So I went all the way to Copenhagen to that studio because I wanted so much to work with her. Essentially, what she brought in was, you know, I have a real gap in my thinking or in my process or had before this, which is that I tend to be too interpretative in the edit. So for me, everything is about what does this shot followed by this shot mean? Whereas she would always be like, it doesn't matter what it means. What does it feel like? So she belongs to a different school of editing. You know, she was a dancer till the age of uh, 32. And she brings that kind of a fluid, like she edits standing up. Everything is about movement and mood and feeling and texture and tone and all of that, you know. Whereas I tend to be a bit top heavy and overly cerebral. So it's very good to have somebody who is able to break you out of that mode and think of experience. So I really enjoyed it therefore with her and she was, she's really reshaped and reconfigured the tone of the film. To I don't imagine that Ben and Riju's shoot footage would really come across as sparklingly as it has because of the sheer brute confidence of her editing hands. Because, you know, you really need a master. I really believe she is a master because you need confidence to, do, to take some of the decisions that we did. To start the film with four minutes of rats is really not easy. Right. And I wanted to do it because I had my theoretical reasons. You know, I wanted to start with the ground. I wanted to start with, you know, something that was icky. But that kind of pacing and stuff like is utterly and entirely dependent on her. Was it really hard? I mean, I'm sure you're just you're shooting all this beautiful footage on dollies and with amazing cameras and probably getting great stuff. And it's I assume it's really hard to cut things like you kind of have to just kill your babies as they say uh, yeah i mean just a bloodbath of babies because uh you really you know you have such excellent material like if i it still uh, makes me wince actually because you know we spent so much time shooting there's this one tree in delhi which is full of hundreds of bats and every evening they fly out and it's operatic and we spent days and days trying to shoot, but just couldn't crack it. Similarly, there's many other shots that we really loved that just like, you know, died at the altar of an economical edit. So, of course, I still feel like maybe I can make a short film with just the material that's there. But yes, I mean, a plethora of good shots that, you know, I really feel we could have made another film with the material we haven't used. Is all of that sitting on a hard drive somewhere still? You could still make a film from it? Tragically, yes. I don't know. I think I'm a bit done with birds for a bit i've had enough in terms of shooting birds uh so um maybe at some point maybe one can repurpose it for something but the jury's still out on it i ask a lot of like verite filmmakers this question how do you decide when to stop when you run out of money <laughs> is that what happened with you i mean we had a, a clear deadline to go to uh, copenhagen for charlotte her time was booked the studio was booked I had to stop. Otherwise, I would still be shooting. It's as simple as that. I just, I have no uh, genuine answer to give because I'm absolutely garbage in knowing when to stop. Because, but for me, I have to say the only interesting thing I have to add to this is that for me, it's never a problem of the third or the closing of the film. 
I have trouble with the second act. I figure out the first act. I figure out the third act. I keep shooting because I keep feeling underconfident about the second act. Mm. What is it about the second act that you feel like not totally confident about? Because the beats that you have to hit are more uh, are vaguer, and you need a substance of a different kind, which has to have it has to have a propulsion, while it also has to be about just the quotidian everydayness of life, which is always tougher to hit. Mm. Do you think that you'll take this visual style into your next project? So it might be a evolution of the style, of course, but I'm not heading into a quick montage style anytime soon. Mm. Can you talk about what's next for you? I would if I knew. I'm just a very slow thinker, and I have no idea what I'm doing next. And I'm too snowed under the work for this film right now. Yeah, I assume there's probably a lot, you know, going on with this, with the Oscars and everything. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed this conversation. I think our listeners will get a lot out of hearing about your process. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Of course. Thank you. Thanks so much. Rough Cuts hosted and produced by Jenny Butler and Sky Dylan Robbins. Abby Kittengor, Amy DiGiacomo, and Kaylee Fox Shannon are our booking producers. Audrey Horowitz is our editor. And our original music is by Zach Wright. And this podcast is part of the Video Consortium, a global nonprofit media org that connects the world's nonfiction filmmakers and video journalists to tell bold stories that catalyze positive change. You can become a member and join our global community of nonfiction storytellers at videoconsortium.org. And if you like the show, you can follow us on Instagram at, at roughcutpodcast or leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. These are nonprofit endeavors with a mission to democratize the industry playing field for all. So if you want to support VC and this podcast, we would love if you'd head to videoconsortium.org to donate. Thanks for listening and see you next time.